Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad, a former true crime professional, a retired traffic homicide detective from South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. So this episode will actually be released a couple days after Indigenous Peoples Day here in the U.S. So oh, okay. what what was previously known as Columbus Day. Oh, right. In honor of that, we will be covering a case this week in which the victim is an Indigenous woman. I never understood that, why they changed Columbus Day. Because Columbus was a murdering rapist. So, oh, all right, well, there you go. And basically, mass murderer. So now they're like, fuck Columbus. Uh. As you may or may not know, indigenous women and girls are murdered at a 10 times higher rate than women of any other ethnicity. I think we discussed that when we did the Highway of Tears. Highway of Tears, yeah. Yeah, this case is actually kind of aligns with the Highway of Tears once again. So we're back at it. Okay. Also, according to the Center for Disease Control, homicide is the third leading cause of death among indigenous women. Damn. More than four out of five indigenous women have been the victim of violence, and more than one out of every two indigenous women have been the victim of sexual violence. So half of indigenous women have been... The victim of sexual violence. Yeah. more te- Technically, it's more than half because I think the percentage is like 54%. All right. So this week, we will be covering a Canadian case, which is closely related, like I said, to the Highway of Tears. Right. Okay. Which we covered pretty extensively in some of our previous episodes. Yeah. So this case was suggested by one of our listeners whose name is Alice. So thank you, Alice. Hello, Alice. I got the majority of my information from a lot of news articles. Also, there's a book which Alice actually suggested to me when she suggested this case. It's called Red River Girl, and it's written by Joanna Jolly. It's a really good book. So if you're interested in finding out more about this case, I highly suggest that book. I also got a lot of information from a report compiled by the Manitoba Advocate in accordance with the Advocate for Children and Youth Act which I will link in the show notes. So if you want to look at that report. Okay. So we're covering the murder of Tina Fontaine. Before we get to the story of Tina, it's important that we kind of have an understanding of the colonization of Canada. Okay. Because it greatly impacted Tina's life and and it kind of relates to her story. All right. So as we will come to find out, Tina's grandparents, and in turn her parents, struggled greatly with domestic violence, addiction, mental health issues, and issues with securing safe and adequate housing. These are all issues that many Indigenous people face throughout Canada, and all of these issues stem from the lasting impacts of something known as the residential school system and the 60s scoop. Have you ever heard of this? 60s scoop? Mm Mm-hmm. No. So, well, it's Canadian history, which obviously we're not taught that so much here. It's definitely was an atrocity that happened in Canada. So we're only going to scratch the surface of the issue. 
but I encourage everyone to look into it more in depthly because it's actually a pretty insane part of history. Okay. In 1876, Prime Minister Alexander Mackenzie passed the Indian Act, which, among other things, formulated a network of boarding schools for Indigenous children. So these schools were funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs. And the goal of these schools was to assimilate Indigenous children into the dominant culture of Canada, so i.e. white Christian culture. Right. Over the course of more than 100 years, Native children were forcibly separated from their parents, their tribes, and their cultures, and many of these children were severely abused and even murdered while attending these schools. Although it is impossible to know how many children died, because obviously there's no record of it, right. it is estimated to be anywhere from 3,200 to 30,000 students that were abused so severely that they died. Oh, shit. Horrible. Parents were also prohibited from visiting their children at these boarding schools because it was thought at the time that the interaction between the parents would basically inhibit the children's cultural assimilation, as they called it, right? Because they're basically forcing them to be more white and they're to speak English and all of that. So they don't want them conversing with their parents because that's just going to enforce their own culture. Yeah, it'll bring them back to what they're supposed to be. Right. So as many of these children were prohibited from speaking their native languages, once they graduated, they were unable to communicate with their families and their indigenous communities because, right, right due to these racist ideologies, they also, it was, it was doubly hard because they couldn't fit in, now they couldn't fit into their own culture, but then there was still a bunch of racism going on in mainstream Canadian culture, so they didn't fit into that either. Right, so essentially they were fucking ostracized from everyone. Right. Like they were, wow. As a result of this and the many years of abuse that most of these children faced, the ones who survived, many of the school's graduates suffered from severe psychological issues throughout their lives, which led to alcoholism, drug addictions, et cetera, et cetera. In the 1950s, so now we're going to start talking about what they call the 60s scoop. Okay. In the 1950s, the Canadian government began phasing out these compulsory schools. Because oh, they still had them up until they, that time. Right. That's how that's how long this went on for. Okay. So they I, they started phasing these out, but that's not where the abuse ended. Of course. Following the phasing out of these schools, the Canadian government's child welfare system began what later became known as the 1960 scoop. So during this time, it was common practice for child welfare workers to basically enter indigenous reservations and communities and basically steal nearly all of the tribe's newborn children for no discernible reason at all that not because they were being abused or inadequately cared for they just would come in and take them away and then these children were ultimately raised within the child's welfare system or by white foster families or adopted out to childless white families so they essentially would just steal these kids unreal okay so as I'm sure you've guessed, that also greatly and permanently damaged the psychological, emotional, and often physical well-being of those children. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This blight on Canadian history greatly affected Tina's family because her family was Indigenous. So through that kind of abundant generational trauma, ultimately that affected Tina's life as well. So right. Tina's father was a member of the Sagkeen First Nation. 
Tina's paternal grandfather had been a victim of Canada's residential school system. So her grandfather was in these abusive schools. Okay. And the abuse he suffered as a child ultimately led to a life of violence and alcoholism. Due to these issues, Tina's grandfather was unable to adequately care for Tina's father. And at the age of 12, Tina's father left home and moved to Winnipeg, where he was forced to fend for himself and often lived on the streets at 12 years old. While living on the streets, Tina's father began experimenting with drugs and alcohol, and like his father before him, also developed a severe addiction issue. Tina's mother was a member of the Bloodvein First Nation. When she was six years old, she was removed from her mother's care by Child and Family Services, or what they call CFS. Okay. Tina's maternal grandmother had a history of forming relationships with violent men. Many of these men had two been the victims of Canadian residential schools. So it's kind of this loop of violence. And Tina's mother was often a victim of physical abuse. So due to Tina's grandmother's inability to secure adequate care and protection for Tina's mother, Tina's mother was ultimately removed from her mother's care too, but was returned several times. So she was constantly taken away, gave back, taken away, gave back. Right. However, at the age of 10, Tina's mother had become a permanent ward of the state where she was moved repeatedly from foster family to state-run shelters. So basically, she never had a real family. Yeah, no stability or anything, right? While in CFS care, employees did little to protect her from harm. And it was during this traumatic time that Tina's mother also began abusing alcohol and drugs. So you can see where Tina was born into a bad situation. Yeah, she never stood a chance. So when Tina's mother was only 12 years old, she met Tina's father, who was a 23-year-old man at the time. The two engaged in a sexual relationship. Remember, Tina's mother at this point is a ward of CFS. Right. At 12 years old, she's with a 23-year-old man. Incredibly, the CFS workers were aware of that pedophilic relationship and knew that Tina's father had a history of violence and severe addictions Yet they did nothing to end the relationship between the two and to protect Tina's mom. Wow. So I'm just going to give everyone a heads up. Throughout this entire story, CFS, not good. Drops the ball, yes. Yeah, not much different than it goes on here in the U.S. Yeah, I was going to say, at least we're not the only animals that inhabit this earth. (laughs) Yeah. Shortly after the pair met, CFS files record that Tina's mother moved in with her father. So at 12 years old, they allowed her to move in with this 23-year-old man. Okay. I mean, despite the fact that Tina was only 12 and clearly too young to be entering into a consensual relationship with a 23-year-old man. Only two years later, in 1995, Tina's mother became pregnant with the couple's first child, At the time, Tina's mother was only 14 years old and her father was 25 years old. Horrible. During this time, it was also brought to CFS attention by Tina's grandmother that Tina's father was forcing Tina's mother to participate in sex work so he could afford to buy drugs and alcohol. So essentially, he was sex trafficking her at 14. At 14. Still, CFS did little to intervene. Even though Tina's mother's mother told them you need to do something about this, they still didn't. Right. Tina's mother gave birth to her first child in 1996. That child was immediately taken into CFS custody upon birth. 
and was made a permanent ward by the time the baby was only seven months old. So basically that baby was taken away and they never saw that baby again. Never saw the baby. Wow. Tina's mother was still living with her father, and once again, nothing was done by CFS to facilitate a safe reunification between the baby and Tina's mom. Right, right. So Tina Michelle Fontaine was the second baby born to the couple on January 1st, 1999 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. By this time, Tina's mother was 17 years old and was still in the custody of CFS because she wasn't yet 18. Right. Tina's father was now 28 years old, and at this point, it seems that the couple were attempting to get their lives together in order to prepare for Tina's arrival. So the pair had both entered rehab and had attended parenting and prenatal classes. So due to those strides, they were allowed to take Tina home following her birth. Six months following Tina's birth, her mother turned 18 and aged out of the CFS system, and therefore her file along with Tina's was subsequently closed at that point. <laughs> okay. However, by that summer, Tina's father once again fell back into addiction. So for the next several years, the couple's relationship remained violent, and the pair frequently partook in the use of drugs and alcohol. In June of 2000, Tina's mother gave birth to her third child. This child, too, was sent home with the parents. So although they've had three children together, they only have custody of two. Okay. However, in October of that year, both Tina, who was only one years old, and her younger sibling were both taken into CFS care because Tina's parents had abandoned them with their grandmother. So she had basically asked the grandmother to watch them and never came back to pick them up. And the grandmother was too old to provide adequate care for them. So at that point, Tina and her sibling were placed into a hotel. What? Yeah. So I found this strange. But apparently this used to be a common occurrence with CFS where they wouldn't have adequate space for children and would just put them into random hotel rooms until they could secure a placement for them. By themselves. A one-year-old they and an infant. They would have, from my understanding, they would have multiple kids in different hotel rooms, and there was one or two workers, like, oh, watching yeah, over them. Okay, great. But they, it's not like they were assigned one to each room. So a lot of the time, they were by themselves. And we'll find out more about this as the story goes on. But isn't that wild? <laughs> this was in the 90s. 90s and 2000s. No, yeah, early 2000s. Well, it, it, you'll, see, you'll see as the story goes on. It goes, it goes into even later than that. But yeah. Isn't that wild? I've, I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, neither, neither have I. Never. So four days later, Tina's mother returned and assured CFS that she would find adequate child care for her children in the future and wouldn't leave them with her mother anymore. They granted custody of Tina and her sibling back to her once again. CFS failed to perform any assessments at this time. So they, basically she showed up and they were like, here's your kids. They didn't even make her take drug tests, nothing. Find out if she had a place to stay. Yeah, nothing. Okay. Wild. Right. So in 2001, Tina and her family moved in with Tina's paternal grandmother. However, shortly after their move, Tina's mother abandoned the family, and Tina and her sibling were left in the care of their father. However, a few months later, Tina's mother returned, and she and Tina's father resumed their relationship once again. So these kids were constantly being abandoned on and off. Right, okay. 
Three months after that, on June 20th, 2001, a neighbor called police and explained that there had been a party going on in the house next door and they'd witnessed two intoxicated individuals leaving the party with a young child and they were concerned that the couple had been too intoxicated to drive. Police arrived, pulled over the vehicle. Inside were Tina's heavily intoxicated parents with two-year-old Tina in the back seat. Tina and her sibling were once again taken into CFS custody where they were once again placed in a hotel for nine days before being moved into a foster home. (laughs) Following the children's removal, Tina's father once again made an effort to get sober. He attended parenting courses and regularly visited his children in an effort to win them back. And five months later, on November 27, 2001, he was successful. However, during this time, Tina's mother refused to enter rehab, made no effort to attend parenting courses, and only visited the children sporadically. Perhaps due to this, Tina's mother and father broke up, and Tina's mother began a relationship with a new man, with whom she gave birth to a fourth child, who surprisingly was left in her care at that time. Okay. <laughs> so she, she's already lost custody of all her other children, but she has a fourth one, and that child gets to stay with her. Right. In December of 2002, when Tina was only three years old and in the custody of her father, her mother once again became pregnant. This time, CFS did get involved as doctors had pointed out a number of safety concerns. At this point, both of Tina's half-siblings were removed from her mother's care, while she and her younger sibling remained in their father's care. Okay. However, two years later, in October of 2004, Tina's father was undergoing treatment for cancer and once again fell back into an alcohol addiction. So after those few years of remaining sober and kind of starting to do the right thing, he found out he had cancer, and that was the end of that. CFS again deemed him unfit to care for Tina and her younger sibling, and his aunt agreed to take custody of the two children. However, although she maintained physical custody, the children still remained legally in the custody of CFS as they wanted to ensure that Tina's father had no access to the children because they deemed him unsafe to be around them, which eventually they lifted after a while. For the next decade, the two remained in the custody of their great aunt and uncle, who they came to refer to as grandma and grandpa. So they're finally getting some stability. Okay. In October of 2011, when Tina was 12 years old, Tina's father had gotten into a drunken brawl over money and had sustained a severe head injury, which ultimately led to his death. The two men he fought with were ultimately arrested and charged with manslaughter and eventually served nine years in prison. Mm. Although she'd remained in the custody of her aunt, Tina still maintained a relationship with her father sporadically throughout the years, and his death had significantly impacted her life. Her aunt later reported that following his death, Tina, who'd always been described as sweet and shy, became withdrawn and began using marijuana heavily. Although Tina's mother had had no contact with Tina or her sister since 2004, on the day of her father's funeral, her mother called and spoke with Tina for the first time in over seven years. Yeah, and that wasn't a good thing. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably... (laughs) So the two began speaking regularly, which seemed to greatly improve Tina's mood. However, after only two months of regular phone calls, Tina's mother's cell phone number was disconnected and Tina did not hear from her again. So once again, abandoned her. Yeah. This abandonment by her mother 
instigated an even further shift in Tina's personality. However, despite this personality shift, Tina was still performing successfully in school at this time. Okay. But by 2013, when Tina was 14 years old, it seemed Tina's depression and anger had finally begun to seep into her school life as well. As during this time, the school social worker met with Tina's aunt and informed her that she'd begun to pull away from her teachers and peers. Her grades had fallen, and she's been skipping school. Okay. Although Tina's aunt did all she could to help Tina, Tina continued on a downward spiral, and in October and November of 2013, she began running away from home and skipped school even more frequently. On November 4, 2013, 14-year-old Tina was reported missing by her aunt. She'd called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and informed them that Tina had not come home and she feared she may have run away to find her mother. She provided officers with Tina's mother's last known address. However, because Tina was technically in CFS custody, officers were forced to contact CFS and ascertain if Tina was allowed to stay with her mother. CFS informed officers that it was, in fact, not safe for Tina to reside with her mother as they had an open case against her during that time involving Tina's half-siblings. Okay. After speaking with CFS, the Winnipeg Police Service were sent to Tina's mother's home to locate Tina. She had, in fact, been at her mother's residence and was immediately removed and taken to the local CFS office. From there, an after-hours CFS employee called Tina's aunt and requested that she drive to Winnipeg to pick up Tina. Tina's aunt explained that she had no transportation available to her and there was no way she could leave that night. As a result, CFS agreed to place Tina into a youth shelter for the evening until her aunt could arrange transportation to come and retrieve her. Two days later, on November 6, 2013, Tina's uncle was finally able to secure a car and drove to Winnipeg to collect Tina. Okay. Following this episode, Tina's aunt allowed Tina to visit with her mother at least one other time as CFS had finally closed their case against Tina's mother. On January 30, 2014, after Tina had turned 15, Tina got into an argument with her aunt and uncle. Following the argument, Tina had grown so frustrated and infuriated that she sliced her own arms open using a pen and then locked herself in her bedroom. So you can tell that this poor girl is just not doing well. Yeah, she's dead. Obviously concerned for her safety, her aunt called the RCMP and requested their assistance and an ambulance. Tina was taken to the hospital and evaluated. While there, Tina confirmed that this was her first incident of self-harm, and she assured hospital personnel that she was not suffering from suicidal thoughts. As a result, her cuts were cleaned and bandaged, and she was sent home with her aunt. Okay. Following this incident, Tina's grades began to plummet even further. Tina's aunt and uncle met with the school and explained that they did not know what else to do to help Tina. However, despite their pleas for assistance, the school or CFS did nothing to provide Tina with any form of assistance or counseling during this time. So her poor aunt and uncle are begging for help and they're just like, eh, you're on your own. Yeah, that happens too often, unfortunately, in the system, so... On April 16, 2014, Tina was suspended from school after she'd shown up to school for a second time high on marijuana. Nine days later, on April 25, 2014, Tina's aunt contacted CFS and requested that they place Tina back in their care as she felt she could no longer handle Tina's declining behavior all on her own. She explained to CFS that she was concerned that Tina was in danger due to her self-destructive behaviors. 
She also explains that Tina had been experimenting with drugs, had run away repeatedly, and had been violent with other family members, and was conversing with adult men on the internet. She informed CFS that Tina was currently missing, and she feared she'd run away once again. CFS once again contacted Winnipeg police and asked that they search Tina's mother's home as it was assumed that she'd gone there once again. When police arrived, Tina was not there. Okay. Later that evening, Tina's aunt contacted CFS and informed them that she'd located Tina in Selkirk with extended family and that she was safe. So on April 29, 2014, CFS met with Tina's aunt at her home, and she informed CFS that Tina was still with her extended family in Selkirk for the time being. She once again requested that CFS provide services to Tina in order to improve her behavior and her mental health and to assist her in processing her grief over her father's death. However, despite her request, these services were never provided. Of course not. On May 6, 2014, a caseworker met with Tina at her aunt's house. Tina informed this caseworker that she felt she needed to undergo counseling, and while this caseworker noted Tina's request in her notes on the meeting, she did nothing to actually provide any sort of counseling for Tina. So even Tina herself is saying, I need counseling, and they're still not doing it. Right. During this time, Tina also expressed that the ongoing court proceedings going on involving her dad's murder were causing her added distress. She was asked to write a victim impact statement for the court and reportedly told her aunt, quote, how do I write on a piece of paper how much this has hurt me? Right. On May 29, 2014, Tina and one of her friends reportedly assaulted three other girls after they'd gotten into a verbal altercation at school. It's unclear what exactly occurred, but when RCMP got involved, the three victims stated that they did not want to press charges against Tina and her friend. So they ultimately faced no consequences for their actions. Wow, okay. So as you can tell, Tina's sort of spiraling down further and further and further as time's going on. Right. And no one's doing anything about it. Finally, after further pleas from Tina's aunt for help, CFS agreed to place Tina in counseling, which was due to begin in late July. However, this counseling was to take place in, I hope I'm saying this right, Beausejour, which was 75 kilometers away from where Tina lived in Powerview. So Tina's aunt explained to CFS that the family did not possess a vehicle and there was no way that they could make that drive every week for counseling. She requested that they put her in counseling somewhere closer to them. Right. The CFS worker informed Tina's aunt that it was their responsibility to find transportation, but they would give them gas vouchers. Which, I'm like, what are gas, gas vouchers going to do if they don't have a car? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That's... So, essentially, although they're finally providing counseling, they're making it impossible for Tina to actually attend regularly. Right, yeah. On July 10th, 2014, Tina's aunt called CFS once again, once again informing them that she was concerned about Tina. She explained that Tina had been on a court-appointed visit to her mom's, and while there, Tina's aunt had received a Facebook message from Tina's boyfriend expressing his concern about Tina. In the message, he stated that Tina had been using crack cocaine with her mother, and that while high, she was being sexually exploited by other men. CFS workers went to Tina's mother's home, but were informed by her landlord that she'd been evicted and no longer lived at that address. An upstairs neighbor informed the agent that Tina's mother had moved in with an, another family member. So they made no effort to find her after that. Okay. Even though they've been informed that she's 
essentially being sex trafficked. Right. And provided drugs and stuff because she's still a minor, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's only 15. 15. Okay. Tina's aunt once again called CFS requesting their assistance because Tina had sent her younger sister a picture of herself with a black eye claiming her mother had hit her. However, CFS took no records of this report and once again nothing was done to find Tina. Crap, man. So I feel bad for her aunt because her aunt's really trying to do the right thing here, but they're like, fuck you, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it happens, unfortunately, quite, quite often in those systems. So. Finally, a week later, Tina was found by Winnipeg police, not because of CFS's action, but because the police had received a call reporting that they'd seen Tina screaming for help as she was dragged down Selkirk Avenue by her arm by an older male. When police arrived, it was determined that both Tina and the 18-year-old male were drunk, and they both were arrested for public intoxication, and Tina was taken to a short-term detox for youth. While there, it was determined that Tina had a blood alcohol level of 0.109%. Okay. So pretty high. Yeah, it's like one and a half times the legal limit. The detox center alerted CFS to Tina's whereabouts. Because remember, they know she's missing, but has done nothing to find her. Right, right. And they also called Tina's aunt to come and pick her up. However, at this point, Tina's aunt informed CFS that she felt she could no longer be Tina's guardian due to her destructive behavior. She explained that she felt she was receiving very little help from the system Mm -hmm. and also felt Tina's behavior put her younger sibling and other family members in danger. Right. As a result, Tina was once again officially placed into the custody of CFS. So I'm going to leave it here for part one. Okay. And we'll pick up part two next week. But it's not looking good. Okay. Yeah. It's hasn't started off well, so I don't foresee it getting any better. Yeah. Because <laughs> of the title. But. Well, right. So I did pick kind of a more lighthearted question because oh, okay. I felt that we might need it after this case. Yeah. So, this question is from Candace. So, hi, Candace. Howdy. And it is for you. Oh. She said, Mark, what is your most can't make this shit up story? More weird, not necessarily gruesome. Ooh, jeez, that's a good question. Let me see. I've experienced so many of them that I don't know if this was, if, if this is actually probably, this is more comical or humorous than, than anything else. We, historically with, with police, I think everywhere, but especially with my department uh, where I used to work. We were the county. We, we were the police for like the, the unincorporated part of the county. And there was other municipalities like, you know, to the north of us, to the south of us, naturally, like especially in the one district that I worked at. And it was funny because we got a call. It was, this happened during the course of one shift. Uh, uh, me and my partner appeared to be a homeless male loitering in front of a business. The business didn't want him there. So we made contact with this gentleman. He turned out to be a deaf mute and he, he was indeed homeless. And all he had was he had a backpack and he had a two liter bottle of, I'll never forget, it was orange sunkissed soda. Right? Who loves orange soda? So we do. We do did, you remember that our... show? No. Who loves orange soda? Cal loves orange soda. I do, no, I no. do, I do. That, that? Welcome to the Good Burger home of the Good Burger. Oh, Can I take good. your order? Yeah. <laughs> so during the, the, I guess, so during the, the course of our investigation where we, you know, we run and make sure he's not wanted or anything like that, 
And we told him he can't stay in the area. And then through like, you know, labored communication, we essentially put him in our car and we drive him north a couple of miles to the county line road and kind of drop him off and say, head that way. You know, and it kind of, not that it was the right thing to do, but we really didn't have any place to place him. He didn't commit any crime. So we just basically were relocating him. So he took his backpack and his orange soda and, and proceeded to walk north into, it was the, the, the county north of us or the city was, was called Miramar. So we go on and we continue handling our calls. About an hour and a half later, we get a call at the same intersection or the same location of a homeless male with a backpack and orange soda. And we're like, <laughs> wait a second. So we take the call, we reference the call, we go back a couple minutes, you know, we go back over there and here's this guy again, the same guy with his backpack and his orange soda. We're like, what the hell? <laughs> like, dude, we told you, you can't. How did you end up back here? How are you even like, communicating? Because, well, you know a little bit of well, sign language. Yeah, but no, but we're writing. We're writing because we have, you know, pads of paper and stuff. We're like, how the hell did you get down here? He's like, well, you guys took me up to and dropped me off. I started walking and I went a couple blocks to a gas station and the police came and they brought me back. <laughs> so Miramar police picked him up and did the same thing. <laughs> We had done. So a second time. This poor, like, this okay. poor guy. Yeah. So a second time, we're like, all right, get in the car. We go north again, but we go further in, like, you know, further past the gas station. So we drop them off. We're like, listen, man, there was nothing else to do with them. So come back. We're working. And as God is my witness, it's like two hours later, I don't know if it was like another hour, hour and a half, two hours later, we get the call of the same guy, not at the same intersection, but but at the like major intersection just north of there of him, ha you know, hanging out in front of this, whatever. So we go to him. So who's calling the police, like the, the businesses? Cause they don't yeah, want him like loitering. Yeah, right. He's like asking for money. And, you know, we told him he can't be doing that, but he's like, I have no, you know, no money, no food, whatever. He's just. Isn't it technically in Florida, like illegal to panhandle? Yeah. There's county ordinances against it and stuff. It's not really a, a law that we enforced only like when we absolutely needed to, like to eliminate the problem. But I never really made that arrest unless the person was really bad. Cause it's just one of those. It's like, yeah, like they're not doing anything. Yeah. So I always, you know, tried to give them a chance or whatever. So this, this last time, this next time we're like, don't tell me. And he's like, yeah, the police came again and they brought me back <laughs> over here. So this time, the third time we took them, instead of taking them north, we took them east to a, another jurisdiction in our, within our county, and we never saw him again. But it was like, what are the chances that this guy was like ping-ponged back and forth between two counties? Although, to be fair, he, like, probably, he probably didn't mind being in the car because it's like air-conditioned, and, you know, it yeah, gets hot yeah, down there. Yeah, and we, you know, we didn't handcuff him. We didn't treat him poorly, and I'm sure they did, you know, he never you know, complained about it. But the whole time... He had his backpack and holding his liter, a two liter bottle of Fanta of, of, of uh, sun, orange sun kissed. On I don't know why, but I guess just because of the orange soda, I just keep picturing Ke like this story, but with Kel like in my head yeah. from that show. Yeah, that was one that we, we like, I still taught that that probably happened shit, 16, 17 years ago. And I still remember it. Like, was your partner at the time like, what the fuck, man? It was, I don't, did you ever meet Angelo, my buddy Angelo Fusco? Yeah, I think I did, but like, yeah. The guy from North New York, yeah, he, he was like, to hear him tell the story, he's so animated and stuff, it's funny, but I was like, I can't, you know, you can't make that shit up that we were trying to, you know, we're trying to, you know, get, get rid of the problem by putting him into another jurisdiction, and those fuckers up there. We're trying to do the same thing. Yeah, and brought him back down to us, so. 
I don't know if he told them that, you know, they, that we took them up there. And so they were like, oh, we'll show them or whatever. But that's <laughs> just like, you know, it was like crazy stuff like that that would happen. That was just like so silly. Can't make that shit up. Like, and I really started using that saying when I got into traffic homicide, but it applied throughout my entire career. Like, you know, if I really think about it, there's I have a thousand stories probably of, to me it was normal because it was work. And after a while, you know, shit doesn't really, you know, it's the same shit with just with different people or, you know, different ways. But, but yeah, that, that was one that I can think off the top of my head that I thought was pretty, <laughs> pretty, you know, pretty funny oh. at the time. It was funny now. I mean, it's funny now, you know, I, I don't want to say I feel bad because like I said, we really didn't do anything wrong because we really, we didn't want to put the guy in jail for nothing. And right. so we were just trying to, you know, put him somewhere else where maybe he had a chance to make some money or whatever, but no. <laughs> I know, poor, poor guy. He just, he just... He's just trying to make a little money and buy some more orange soda. That's it. Just trying to, just trying to survive out there. So, so I hope that was a, I hope that was a good enough answer. I mean, well, Candace, we, we hope you got what you were looking for. Yeah. And if not, I apologize, but I'll try to think, I'll think about them just in case that question comes back up. Unfortunately, most of my cases have been, they're pretty gruesome. You know, yeah. Majority of the stuff I did, I, I did a bunch of stuff, unfortunately. That was to me routine. That is probably super interesting to people who don't encounter it every day. But I kind of like I would have to think really hard to to think of those things. But the things that that are stuck in my brain are all the gruesome stuff. Because of course, stuff unfortunately never leaves you. So I, we, there's a saying I've I've heard it from different people. It's like I hope my brain can forget what my eyes have seen, but so far, no dice. So yeah. And it's gonna. I think it's just gonna be permanently upstairs there for <laughs> until I die. So. Well, you know, maybe once you get older, you'll start, you know, losing your, you'll, yeah. you'll start losing your mind a little bit. I think I already am, but not for that type of stuff. <laughs> when you're re- when you're really old, you'll just like forget who I am. You'll forget. You'll yeah. forget all those. Yeah, I'll be like, I was a cop. What? Yeah, and I'll be like, yeah, yeah, you were. <laughs> Can you believe it? Yeah, I can't even believe it's already over. Here we are. Here we are. All right. Well, we'll pick up the story of Tina Fontaine for part two next week. So I guess until then, if you will leave us a review, that would be really great. Yes, we would appreciate that. It really helps us get more listeners. It helps us keep the show going. So that would be very, 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 very nice of you to leave a review on whatever whatever platform you're listening on. If you hate us, just forget about it. Yeah, just, you know, thanks for listening and just keep moving on. Yeah. So (laughs) until next week, bye. Bye.
Losing their minds. <laughs>